Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during the pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be focusing on mask use after receiving the COVID-19 vaccine and its importance. To discuss this are IDSA members, Dr. Josh Barocas of Boston University School of Medicine and Dr. Ricardo Franco of the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Thank you, doctors, for joining me. Dr. Barocas, I'd like to start the discussion with you today. Now that more and more Americans are receiving a COVID-19 vaccine, what does it mean for the recommendations for social distancing and masking? I have an evolving answer to this question. First, it's important to remember that only a very small percentage of people have received the COVID-19 vaccine thus far. I believe somewhere around 2 to 3% as of today have received it, have received both doses of either the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccines. So what does this mean? I think what we have to do is think about what this means in public spaces and what this might mean in private spaces. So in public spaces, where we don't know who's vaccinated, we don't know who has what medical comorbidities, it is still a very good practice. And I think it is the right practice to continue masking and continue social distancing. Because if you're standing in line at the grocery store, the chances are the person next to you probably hasn't been vaccinated yet. Second, we don't know what what sort of underlying medical conditions that person might have. The data that are coming out about the vaccines are incredibly, incredibly optimistic. We're learning that not only does it have excellent prevention against even minor COVID-19 disease, but especially severe COVID-19 disease, including hospitalization and death, it's also showing that what we sort of expected to be true, it decreases transmission. So all of this is, is good news. But again, because we don't know who in public-facing spaces or in public spaces has received the vaccine, I think that social distancing and masking are still crucial in those external from your home places. Now, In your home, if you are a vaccinated person and you wanna have someone else who's vaccinated over for some sort of social gathering, it's best still to practice as cautiously as we can. So maybe that means opening windows, maybe that means if it is just two of you that are vaccinated, spending time at you know still different ends of the table, but it is really an optimistic view that that we will, among vaccinated people, be able to start having more social interactions. But again, I think it's really important to point out that still a very small percentage of people have been vaccinated. Excellent points, Dr. Barocas. Thank you for raising them. On to Dr. Franco now. If someone is fully vaccinated, can they still pass the virus to others? It is possible that a fully vaccinated person can pass the virus to, to others. But it seems to be much less likely of a thing to occur. If you think that controlling the pandemic will require shots that prevent viral spread, that feature in our vaccines is a very difficult thing to measure. What we know so far is that 
vaccines have great efficacy, 90, 95% in preventing disease. In terms of the risk of catching the virus without symptoms, the researchers that look at the Moderna or AstraZeneca vaccine, they have specific trial designs. They tested often their trial participants and they observed that after a single shot of their vaccines, there was a reduction of 50 to 66% in the risk of catching the virus compared to the participants who otherwise received placebo. Besides that, by regularly swabbing these participants, they noted lower SARS-CoV-2 viral loads in their nose swabs among the participants who got infected, regardless if they had symptoms or not. So another key observation comes actually from extensive now real-world experience with vaccine access of the national program in Israel. This is a country that has been in the forefront of vaccine access and has been able to give shots now to about 40% of their overall population. So among over 400,000 people who received shots, public health officials there, they observed about 75 infections by day seven following the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. And that number of infections dramatically dropped soon after and by three weeks from the second dose, no more infections were observed. I mean, all this is very encouraging indirect evidence that vaccine reduces asymptomatic spread. But there are also groups trying to measure that with more precision. To do that, they have to look at the number of new infections that occur around people who already received the vaccine. These studies are very difficult to implement because the researchers have to control for other factors that reduce viral transmission, such as social distance, mask use, hand hygiene mandates, and other things. So it's a very challenging thing to do, but they, these researchers are up to the challenge and see if we can have a more specific answer. Thank you for those points, Dr. Franco. Dr. Barocas, I'd like to come back to you and talk about masks. And can they be removed in crowds or at gatherings if everyone has received their vaccine? What do masks do that vaccines don't? That's the big question. As Dr. Franco said, the vaccines help prevent disease, and we're hopeful that they also help prevent forward transmission. Masks help prevent forward transmission, and they prevent a person from actually being transmitted too. These two preventive mechanisms, these two preventive tools, serve pretty much two totally different purposes. It is a complicated answer, and and I'll tell you, the reason it's complicated is because we don't know who our bubble is. We think we know how far our bubble extends, but we don't actually know. And, and studies have shown that. People think that their, their bubble is confined to a small group of people, but then when you really start to dig in, you can actually see how far your network actually can, can extend. When I think about masks in vaccinated people, I think about it as context, and I think about it as, I know that this is, is going to be a little controversial, but also co continued symbolism. So let's talk about context first. So the context is, if you are 
two fully vaccinated people standing outside on a golf course 20 feet away from each other, then the likelihood of transmission of either one of you infecting the other is approaching zero. And the likelihood of two of you, of one of the two of you getting severe disease is nearly zero. It's even smaller, right? Because that's what a vaccine does is it helps prevent the severe disease. So if you're outside hanging out with a friend and you're both vaccinated, then the likelihood that that a mask is really doing much of anything is fairly small. Now, of course, that risk goes up as you move inside, as there are more people around, as the ventilation is worse. We have to think of things as, in terms of joint probability. Now, the more controversial stance on this is, let's talk about it as symbolism. I've thought about this in the past, that when I bike down the street, I, I bike through the city of Boston, I still wear a mask. And it's not because I'm actually worried about catching the virus. I'm, I am a fully vaccinated person. I'm lucky enough to be fully vaccinated. And as I'm riding my bicycle down the streets of Boston, where perhaps I don't pass a single other person on foot or on bike, there's clearly, I would say, zero chance of me becoming infected or transmitting the virus to somebody else. That said, there is symbolism in it, and and there is a bit of solidarity in saying, you know, this is something that we are all doing. Uh, Not everyone is lucky enough at this point to have a vaccine, to be vaccinated. When I wear a mask, it's telling people I value them and I value their life and, and that to some degree we are all still responsible for each other and we are all still in this hopefully together, because that's the only way that we're getting out of this is together. I do wear my mask. It's a personal decision, even in those circumstances in which the chance of me infecting or becoming infected is practically zero. I I wear my mask because it's a symbol. It's a symbol that I I value um, all of the efforts that everyone is taking right now. I value everyone else's lives and livelihoods. And it's one very simple way for me to say, I'm, I'm with you on this. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Thank you for your insight, Dr. Barocas. Dr. Franco, what do we know currently about the effectiveness of the vaccines against variants? And will this influence recommendations on mask wearing and social distancing? The current effectiveness of vaccines against variants, that is, for now, a wide open question. We're still learning what the clinical or epidemiological implications of the variants in both vaccinated and certainly among the people that have not been vaccinated uh, and how this is going to look like in the near term. However, we do have available studies in vitro that they showed 
that the UK variant is about three times less susceptible to the neutralizing antibodies that are present in people who recovered from COVID-19 and twice less susceptible to antibodies from vaccinated people. Those are in fact not disencouraging findings if we think of vaccines as a tool to protect severe infection. And it is a consensus for now that this lack of susceptibility at the levels observed in vitro might not, although this is still to be confirmed, become a big problem clinically or to the epidemiology of COVID-19. Now, the South Africa variant seems to be more worrisome in this regard because it is about 11 to up to 33 times less susceptible to neutralizing antibodies from people who recovered from COVID-19 and about eight times less susceptible to these neutralizing antibodies from people who received either Moderna or Pfizer vaccines. If you ask me, it seems that the emergency of these variants will continue to influence recommendations on mask wearing and social distancing. The CDC now says that nearly all U.S. states have reported infections by the U.K. variant, and at least 10 states have reported infections by the South African variants. So the CDC is monitoring the situation closely, and it is common sense that the public needs to stay vigilant as well. Great insight, Dr. Franco. Thank you. Dr. Barocas, could you discuss the importance of keeping up this multi-layered approach to risk reduction? It's going to sound incredibly nerdy. This is one of my favorite topics to talk about because I think it's um, where nuance comes in. The way I've been talking about it is perhaps a little bit of with an esoteric analogy, but but I'll go with it anyways. I think about a medieval knight. We've been reading the, the Chronicles of Narnia in our house, so this comes up a lot. So we've got a medieval knight who learns how to, who's a, going into a jousting match. So if everybody who's listening thinks, you know, can conjure up that, that image, the likelihood that you become injured as a knight goes down if you're wearing all the proper armor. It goes down if you are trained at using the the jousting sword appropriately. It goes down the better you are at riding on horseback. It goes down as your opponent may not be as well prepared. So all of these things go into the not just the likelihood that you win because this isn't about winning in this case it's this all decreases the likelihood that you get injured during the match as you put more and more layers of protection on not just the the armor but if you're missing one piece of those layers of protection then hopefully the other things can make up for it. So again, let's say that you've done all of these things appropriately and you're missing a, a sleeve of armor. Well, hopefully the rest of your armor and your skills and whatnot, they compensate for that missing piece of, of armor. To me, this is uh, an, a good analogy for why we use a multi-layered approach 
in uh, with regard to, to COVID and in risk reduction. That's because the only way that you are 100% protected from infection or disease, 100% is if you lock yourself in your basement for the next year and you don't come out, which is not something that I'm recommending. It's not something that is even feasible, right? To have no contact with other people. The only way that you don't get injured in a jousting match is by not engaging in, in the match. But of course, you're already there, you're, you're in it. And so what, what have you done to protect yourself? What have we done to protect ourselves as a community? It's effectively saying we're not just going to place all of our eggs in one basket. Um, we're going to use these multi-layered approaches because masks are not 100% effective. Social distancing isn't 100% effective. Ventilation isn't 100% effective. Vaccines aren't 100% effective, though fairly close when you combine all of them together. So if you do that, then effectively, you're going to walk out of that jousting match, hopefully unscathed, unscathed from injury. And, and that's what we're hoping for with a multi-layered approach to risk reduction. It also means that if you let's say forget one piece of it not only are you are are you still mostly protected but you're less likely to say oh you know i screwed up i'm i'm done um i failed nobody's failed because there are multi layers it's nearly impossible to fail it, it gets to what's called the abstinence violation effect where people say, I did this little thing wrong, so I've already failed. When we take this multi-layered approach where we say that all of this is about risk reduction, then effectively we're setting ourselves up for success. Thank you, Dr. Barocas, for your clear explanation there. Dr. Franco, turning back to you, how do these variants affect herd immunity goals? And when do you think we'll get back to some sense of normalcy? These variants, they do have the potential to affect herd immunity goals because they may be as, as much as 50% more transmissible than, than the regular virus. This certainly could lead to, to the maintenance of control measures and push our immunity goals higher. So traditionally, herd immunity is estimated by the basic replication number which is the number of new cases that an existing case generates at the very beginning of an epidemic when everybody is susceptible to that infection. Those estimates are limited because it assumes that everybody is equally susceptible to get infected and everybody has similar ability to transmit the virus once they are infected. That being said, those are the best estimates available, and we have done this over the years for many other pandemics we have dealt with. So for example, the basic replication number for the 1918-18 influenza pandemic was 1.5, which gives you an estimated herd immunity threshold of 35%. If you compare that to the other extreme, measles has an extremely high replication number, greater than 14, 
And that's where you see the highest herd immunity threshold that we need to achieve about 95%. If you look at SARS-CoV-2, that comes in the middle range, has a replication number well over two, and a herd immunity by these estimates, the threshold is about 60%. Once we look at variants with a higher basic replication number well over three, we're now talking about estimated herd immunity thresholds at or maybe over 70%. So because we have to keep the potential impact of these variants in mind, if you ask me when we'll get back to some sense of normalcy, I would prefer to take a more conservative assumption here, one that don't really take into account any underlying population immunity. So if we take that baseline population immunity before any vaccine rollout away, this may perhaps compensate for the negative impact of this variant sustaining the pandemic because of this higher basic replication number these variants have. And then if you look at the pace of vaccine rollouts at, or maybe even over now, a million doses per day, and thinking that we might be approaching uh, about 20 million people fully vaccinated, uh, completing their vaccine schedules at this time, we would perhaps vaccinate about 65% of the population by the end of the year and feel safer then. So we're vaccinating as much people as we think the herd immunity threshold is. In a more optimistic outlook, the baseline immunity from infection and even the partial protection from vaccine single doses, which seems to be a thing, not enough to implement public health policies on it, but certainly something that seems to be real to some extent. And if you think that the variants may have a lower impact in disease transmission, we could push this timeline well back to the fall instead of the end of the year. Dr. Barocas, do you share this same estimate? You know, usually I, I look to Dr. Franco for a lot of this uh, information. Here in the U.S., I think that we probably are looking at optimistically later in the year, perhaps reaching that herd immunity standpoint. But I do want to make sure that, that everyone remembers that this is a global problem and we aren't insulated. Viruses don't necessarily, uh, as we've seen, uh, they're not contained by artificial or, or um, arbitrary borders of countries and with possible transmission throughout the globe. The vaccine rollout is slower in different parts of the globe and different countries have been impacted disproportionately. And so when we think about global herd immunity beyond our own um, North American borders, I think it's important to push that timeline a little further, in fact, probably a lot further back. And, and our efforts really need to make sure that this is addressing the global pandemic and not just uh, the North American one. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Franco and Barocas for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's real-time learning network, covid19learningnetwork.org. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic.
The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.